On Monday, September 17, 1984, eight-year-old Vicki Lynn Hoskinson beamed with pride as she hopped on her pink bicycle and rode to a nearby mailbox to send out her aunt's birthday card. This was the first time Vicki Lynn was allowed to venture outside the house by herself. Prior to this, her mother always insisted upon the buddy system. Delighted with a new sense of freedom and determined to make her mom proud, Vicki Lynn embarked on the two-block bike ride, never to be seen again. everyone welcome to sentence podcast my name is Kara and I'm Caitlin how are you I'm good how are you I'm good how was your day it was a Monday <laughs> which it was exhausting I literally was at work what felt like 30 minutes and then I looked down and it was 11 a.m and it was just one of those days oh that's kind of nice though yeah how was your day it was good. Actually, it was great because I got your Christmas card and it just brightened my spirits. Yay! <laughs> you got a Disney one, right? Yes, I did. Of okay. course. <laughs> I sent out like three different ones and only two of them were Disney. You had Christmas cards that weren't Disney? Because uh, I ran out of cards. Oh. I bought two packs of cards and it wasn't enough, so... <laughs> You're so ever- popular. Yeah, everybody else got just, like, these other Hallmark ones that I had. But, hey, they were still Hallmark. Mm. Cool. Okay, well, um, do you have any true crime news to share? Not today. I don't have any updates. Okay. Me neither. So, uh, let's just get into the episode. Just as kind of a preface to this episode, I do want to put a trigger warning out there that this case does have to do with some sexual assault and children are involved. Um, I am going to do my best to handle this with grace and of course in doing so advocating for the victim and the victim's family but this is difficult stuff. Um, So before I get into anything too traumatic I will do my best to kind of give you guys a trigger warning and then that way you can choose whether or not you want to um, skip ahead. Good to know. So can I leave now or <laughs> should I just leave later? <laughs> you can't leave. No. <laughs> I'll stick around. I'm here for the long haul. Okay, good, good. Okay, so Vicki Lynn Hoskinson. Um, she was born on February 2nd, 1976, which is Groundhog Day. And growing up, Vicki Lynn had trouble pronouncing her G's, and so she called Groundhog Day Hound Dog Day, which is adorable. <laughs> that is so cute. Isn't that so cute? <laughs> and even more wholesome is that the family, they still call it that to this day. It just kind of stuck. Aww. And so, um, yeah. Uh, Vicki was born to Debbie and Ron Hoskinson. And at the time of her disappearance, she lived with her mother, Debbie, her stepfather, George, her sister, Stephanie, and they had a little brother, Brian. Um, Vicky stood at four feet tall, weighed 60 pounds, and had auburn hair. 
She had deep blue eyes and what her family called a unique nose, which is also super cute. And uh, she had freckles on her face. She was described by her mom as a tomboy who had a love for softball, but she also enjoyed playing dress up or Barbies with her sister. Um, She would even dress up her three-year-old brother, Brian, in girl clothes and push him around the neighborhood in a stroller. I mean, same. Yeah. We <laughs> tortured my brothers when they were little and made them wear whatever dress-up clothes we had on us. Yeah, I think I recall painting my uh, male family members' nails and that sort of thing <laughs> and forcing them to play Barbies. So it's just what we do. It's what sisters do. I mean, they always wanted to play with my Barbies, and then they started cutting their hair off, so they stopped playing with my Barbies. <laughs> Um, so Vicky loved her grandparents and she would never miss cheering her grandpa on at the racetrack on Saturdays. Her favorite food was her, uh, Nana's tacos. And she, at the time when she was eight years old, she could eat about five tacos in one sitting, which is pretty impressive. I can't even do that. I know. I can eat like two, maybe three. Yeah. Um, her other favorite food was SpaghettiOs and French fries. Um... And something else that's super cute is her mom always had to dress dress her last because if she didn't, then Vicky would just find mud or dirt or like a water fountain <laughs> or something to play in to get herself dirty. Hold on, wait. You said SpaghettiOs and French fries like together? Yes, together. Like SpaghettiOs on top of the French fries? It didn't specify, but... Why does that sound kind of good? <laughs> Like, I could just see that McDonald's fr- or, like, crinkle-cut french fries mm-hmm. with SpaghettiOs. Okay, I might have to try that. <laughs> we may have to have, like, a separate thing where we try, like, try all these foods. favorite foods. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so down. Um, so, on Monday, September 17th, 1984, in Flowing Wells, Arizona, and this is just outside of Tucson, shortly after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Vicki arrived home from school. She was helping her mom with a few chores around the house, and she asked if she could go deliver her aunt's birthday card by herself because her older sister, Stephanie, was at track practice. So Debbie told Vicky she could go mail the card, but she would have to be home by 3.30. When Vicky left the house, she was wearing a red and blue striped dress with white socks that had blue bows on them. About 20 minutes later, the front door opened, but it was not Vicky at the door. It was Debbie's other daughter, Stephanie, who at the time was 11 years old. Since Vicky wasn't back yet, Stephanie went to go look for her. Um, And she thought maybe she slept by her friend Jennifer's house, and that's why she wasn't home yet. But when Stephanie went to look for her, she found her bike in the middle of the road. And she started calling out her sister's name, thinking maybe she was somewhere nearby. And she just saw something and kind of stopped her bike for whatever reason. Um... So Stephanie couldn't find her, and Debbie drove to the spot where Vicky's bike was, and she was immediately concerned because Vicky would not have just left her bike there. She seemed like a pretty responsible kid, and she also treated that bike like it was her most prized possession. So um, Vicky, or sorry, Debbie loads the bike into the car, and she drives home, and she just immediately starts crying. Like something inside her is like, this is not okay. Yeah, and I mean, like, when you're a kid, your bike is everything. Yeah. Like, that, that is your means of transportation. That is how you're getting around. That is how you're able to do anything. So, yeah, I don't see... How old did you say she was at this time? Eight. 
Yeah, no eight-year-old is just going to, like, not have their bike, so... Right, especially... Like, yeah, I would immediately assume something nefarious was going on. Yeah, and she was a responsible kid. This was her first time. It's not like she was defiant. She, this was her first time she was allowed to venture by herself. She wasn't going to mess it up. Oh my gosh, I can, the heart-wrenching, like, Mm -hmm. just that feeling of just, like, panic. I can just feel it, and I just feel so sorry for And then just feeling, like, so helpless, and, like, what do I even do next? Yeah. Um, so, she calls her husband home from work, her husband George, and then she also calls the Pima County Sheriff's Department. Although Vicky had only been missing at this point for 90 minutes, the Pima County Sheriff's Office took this very seriously. This was not something that happened in that community. Police officers start by retracing her route, and they also went to her best friend Jennifer's house to see if anyone had seen her, if she had stopped by. Neither Jennifer nor their mom said they had seen her, but Jennifer's five-year-old brother said that he had seen her come by looking for Jennifer, but since Jennifer wasn't home, Vicky rode her bike away. So this is where it gets a little confusing because this there was an additional source that said that um, Jennifer was home and Jennifer said, yeah, come home and like come over and play, and then Vicky left to go ask her parents permission and then she was supposed to come back um and then the new then this same newspaper reports that jennifer's little brother saw vicky after this conversation took place talking to someone in a brown car yes so perhaps vicky stopped by jennifer's house and then while she was on her way home, that's when they saw her in the brown car or not in the brown car sorry talking to someone in a brown car so she went to Jennifer's house to see if Jennifer was home. She wasn't home, so she was going back to her house. So that's what one source says, and then there's another source that says Jennifer was home and she wanted to play, but Vicky wanted to go ask her mom permission. So either way, she left Jennifer's house. Got it. Okay. Yeah. As police were canvassing the area, two teenage boys, probably around the age of 13 or so, said they saw Vicky on her bike as well. She was riding away from the convenience store, presumably heading back home. So when Vicky went to mail the card, she was mailing it in one of those blue mailboxes kind of on random street corners and stuff, kind of in front of a Circle K. So that's what they mean by convenience store. And sometimes she would go into the convenience store and talk to the manager or get a snack or whatever. Um, So the witnesses says before they saw... Before they passed Vicky going in opposite directions, they saw a very slow-moving black car with California plates driving in the area, and it was moving so slow that on their bikes, they were just easily able to pass it, heading in Vicky's direction. Just a few hours into Vicky's disappearance, the Pima County Sheriff's Department called in homicide detective Gary Dammers, and so Dammers worked for the Tucson Department. And then just very shortly, they set up a command center at the elementary school so that that way uh, they could take any sort of calls or any sort of tips that came in. They had people there on site 24-7. Okay, so I hate to ask you to backtrack. So was she leaving the convenience store after she left Jennifer's house? So after she went to the convenience store, she was on her way home and that's when she went to Jennifer's house. So on her way home, she stopped at Jennifer's house. Correct. Okay, got it. So she left her house to go mail this letter at the convenience store, 
And then on the way back, she stopped at Jennifer's house to probably see if Jennifer was there to play. Yes. And then Jennifer was either there or not there, and then she was on her way home. Yes. Okay, got Yeah, it. that's my understanding of it. Um, so they have a command center set up at the school. Um, they also have additional officers canvassing the area and the fields. They have dogs. The dogs could not pick up any scents. And so I think it's important to note, too, that the reason why the why Pima County brought in um, the F, well, actually, sorry, let me backtrack. So under the federal kidnapping statute, uh, Pima County was impelled to ask the FBI to help with this case. The reason being is because the FBI has power to extend the case outside of the state if necessary. So since this was a kid missing, they were like, we need the FBI because this might be beyond our jurisdiction. Why doesn't every county do that? Oh, I'm sure there's budget costs and... I know, but I just feel like if the FBI got involved in, like, every child that went missing, we probably wouldn't have as many missing children. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, And then, in addition, the Carlson family also had a deputy stay at their house just in case there was a ransom call or if there is just any... If anyone came to the house, it was for their protection as well. Yeah. So that kind of concludes day one of the investigation. Going into day two, Agent Larry Bagley from the FBI Tucson field took the assignment. So at the call center, meanwhile, they were getting a lot of calls. And unfortunately, a lot of these or some of these were pranksters. Some of them were misinformed people calling. But they did get one call that kind of piqued their interest. Um, A woman called saying she saw Vicky at the mall with a woman in a toy store. And so this tipster, she happened to be an employee at the toy store. And she said that a woman came in wearing a large brimmed hat and she was with an upset girl. And it seemed like she was placating the girl or somehow trying to compromise or bribe her. The girl was noticeably upset, but I mean, that, that could go either way. Sometimes, I mean, I was kind of a devil child and I'm sure that (laughs) were (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm sure I didn't always make things easy for my mom so well especially if it's like a toy store I mean most kids if they don't get what they want they're gonna have some sort of meltdown so I could see that you know it's nice that this woman was keeping an eye on it but I could also see why maybe nobody else paid any mind is because like kids will have meltdowns over not getting the cereal they want let alone a toy exactly So either, however you want to take it, I mean, so she ended up buying a toy and paying cash for it. And the weird thing is, is that she pulls the cash out of the envelope, which seemed a bit strange because it's like, why wouldn't you pull it out of your wallet? Right. But I don't know that also she just went to the ATM and a lot of times at banks, they give you an envelope where they ask if you want an envelope. Usually it's for larger amounts. So I don't know, but, um, so anyway, so the. The tip store or the clerk came down to the command center for a composite sketch of the customer. And so this was the first big lead that investigators had. And the theory behind this was maybe this woman had lost a child and she was trying to kind of replace a child. Um, Right. Which happens a lot, sadly. Like, depression and grief, people react differently and unfortunately mothers in particular will 
find a child and just keep them as their own because they lost theirs. Yeah, it's really sad and really, really, really scary. Um, and there's... So, detectives thought... This, this is really unlikely because if someone just kidnapped this young girl, why would they bring her in public? That doesn't seem right. Right. Unless Vicky knew the abductor. Mm. And then that theory would kind of explain why Vicky wasn't trying to run away. It would seem out of character that if she was with someone she didn't know, her mom was like, no, she would have ran. If, if she was in public somewhere with someone she didn't know, she would have ran. Yeah. Um. So investigators took the sketch around the neighborhood to potentially get a name, but no one could identify her. So they continued to search for this woman and they went back to the mall and they went to other stores because this woman was carrying shopping bags from other stores. So they went to the other stores that she shopped at and the, the other cashiers or employees said she looked familiar, but they didn't know who she was. She wasn't a regular. They couldn't give her a name or anything like that. So, um, by day two of the search, there was extensive news coverage. They were using helicopters to search for Vicky. They were using canines. They were doing absolutely everything that they could. Um, <clears throat> also, on the second day, they came in and took over her room. Um, they took her sheets. They took her pillow, her pillowcase, her hairbrush. At this point, they were preparing for a homicide. And they needed to collect the stuff so that they had DNA. Even though this was in the 80s and DNA isn't what it is today, they still kind of were taking precaution and planning for the worse. Yeah, they had that wherewithal to plan ahead just in case, you know, something did happen. Right. Um, and they were transparent to Debbie, and she was not very receptive of this. She was, in a way, I think she was hoping that it was the whole mother losing a child theory because I think that in her mind, which I understand, she was like, well, if that's the case, Vicky is at least safe. Um, and then at a local high school, there was a student and he said that he recognized that woman from the sketch. He said that this one, he saw this woman driving, um, with someone in the car in a black Monte Carlo. So, again, it kind of circles back to a darker vehicle. And then, meanwhile, at the command center, people were coming forward with information. So, another woman comes in with her three-year-old son. Three years old is very young, so let's just yes. <laughs> keep that in mind. It um, is a baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this woman, and so this is the woman that actually lived right in front of the house where Vicky's bike was found. And so when Stephanie and Debbie found the bike, they went to knock on the door to see, have you, did you see anything? Did you hear anything? My Like, this is my sister's bike. But no one answered. No one was home. So this happens to be that woman and her three-year-old son. And um, her son, I guess, was playing in the front yard. And, and she was outside with him. And then for a brief moment, she had to run inside. And then she came back out and he was still playing. But I guess in that moment, while... She was inside. Um, her son said said that he saw a girl in a pink bike get knocked down by a black race car. And then a big girl with long hair got out of the black race car and helped the girl get inside the black race car. And so the mom is kind of 
helping translate this to the cops and right they decided to take this tip seriously and they went back to where they found the bike to see if there was anything that they missed or anything that could help determine what happened here well this is gonna sound kind of messed up but like why take an eight-year-old like if there was a three-year-old just by himself in the front or maybe it comes back later like maybe the person who took her was specifically looking for a little girl I don't know but it's like if it was this whole angle of like oh I lost my child why would you take such an older child right someone that knows that this is wrong a three-year-old yeah sorry a three-year-old wouldn't exactly know the difference yes they would be upset they know who their mom is but they don't have the wherewithal to really ask for help i mean his mom is here translating yeah so i get i get what you're saying there i'm not saying to kidnap three-year-olds instead of eight-year-olds just don't kidnap children like right at all but still i'm just thinking like it's just really interesting that there were not one but two um children of available to this person and so it's interesting that they chose a a more for lack of a better term a more difficult target exactly you know yes i i do see what you're saying so they get back to where her bike was found and one thing that they did find was there was a big gouge on a post that so a post meaning like if it was a stop sign or a yield or whatever it was there was a big gouge on it and um Bagley, the FBI agent, he's the one that found this. And so by the looks of it, he could tell that this was not made by a bigger vehicle, but by a vehicle that was kind of sitting lower to the ground. So at this point, their main focus is they keep hearing this like a, a smaller black car, a small dark car. So this is really the angle that they're kind of going with right now. So either like a sedan or like a sports car, like the little boy said. Exactly. Exactly. So the detectives are all conversing and again, like, like I said, their main focus is this black car. So they're just like, did anyone take any statements about a black vehicle? And one of the detectives had. So Sam Hall, a coach at the elementary school, said that he had seen a low black car with California plates driving really slowly and suspiciously near the schoolyard area. And um, there's multiple sources that say that there was a very derogatory hand gesture. I don't know exactly what that hand gesture was, but he was watching the children play and he was making hand gestures. So... Um, pretty disturbing. And so the coach said that the driver had long, dark hair, a beard, and as soon as he saw this, the person driving this vehicle, his face, a chill went down his spine. And he was just like, this is not okay. So, oh, so, so they're now saying that it was a guy driving the vehicle. Correct. Oh, so this whole, like, angle of, like, a mother... Wait, okay, so didn't the person at the toy store see... Hold on. My cat is in the litter box, and I don't have anywhere else to go right now, so AJ's just going to have to cut this out. (laughs) Honey, you're really doing that right now? (laughs) 
she's like, Mom, you're busy, I know, but I have to go to the bathroom. Okay. <laughs> I can't with her. Oh, my God. I'm surprised you don't walk them out. Is this where their litter boxes, though? That's where their litter boxes are, and I, it's too much of a hassle to move them out into the hallway. Because, like, there's two litter boxes, so I'd have oh. to move both of them. And then they can get litter all over the floor. Oh, my God. Ma'am. I'm just going to talk over it. This is not um, how we do business. <laughs> no. Well, she's doing her business. <laughs> um, okay, so at the toy store, didn't somebody say they saw a woman with Yes, so somebody at, that they at thought the toy was Mickey? store, at the toy store, they, they saw this woman. Multiple people saw a woman with a large brimmed hat with a young girl that fit the description of Vicky. And they, I mean, Vicky's family had given detectives pictures of her at this point. So they know what Vicky looks like. But, I mean, if you see a picture after, the day after you see someone, it's going to be hard to identify that, right? Especially if they're both younger, say they both have blue eyes, say they have auburn hair. And sometimes you see what you want to see. Right. So either we're dealing with misinformation or somebody seeing somebody they thought was Vicky or potentially a couple. Correct. That kidnapped her. Okay. Correct. Okay. So, um, so like I said, so the coach, Sam Hall, so he took down this license plate number because, again, he just got a sick feeling about this. This was totally freaking him out. And so he gave the license plate to the detectives. Or, yes, the license plate number to the detectives. And that's what takes us into day three because at this point, again, it's in the 80s and looking up a license plate number back then was not as easy as it is today. Right. Okay, so that leads us into the third day of the investigation where the Carlson family held a press conference on the evening news. And I believe that this was nationally because they wanted to reach a pretty large audience. And then, Yeah, of course. Yeah. So something that is just really kind of pulled up my heartstrings is Vicky's mom, Debbie, she was holding her Cabbage Patch doll during the press conference, and she said, we hope you're safe. We hope that anyone who knows where Vicky is will call the 911 number or the sheriff's number so Vicky can return. And then her stepfather, George, says, we're waiting for you, baby. And then um, Debbie finished the press conference by saying, we all love you very much and miss you. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And so at this point, the results from the license plate came back. Yes. So this license plate was registered to a 28-year-old man in Los Angeles by the name of Frank Atwood. The FBI looked into Frank Atwood, and eventually they got his rap sheet. Frank had on his rap sheet prior convictions, and this is a trigger warning, for child molestation and kidnapping. Oh my gosh. So he was currently on parole in the state of California. Atwood had served three out of five out of a five-year sentence for the molestation of a seven-year-old boy. And the most messed up part about this is that the conviction was plea bargained down to abduction. First of all, California, get your shit together. Second of all, the fact that you can harm a child in any way, let alone in the way that he did, and you're just walking around after just a slap on the wrist, Mm -hmm. like, blows my mind. It is 
the most disturbing thing. Because nine times out of ten, they're gonna reoffend. Exactly. These people don't it's, like. It's they don't come out better people. No, especially after sh- serving such a short sentence, that is not enough time for rehabilitation. Especially no, if they're not offering any sort of psychological help. No, our justice system is so warped that it's like, uh, you just got to stay behind bars for a little bit and then you can get out. But we're not going to help you in any way. But also it's like these people that do these crimes to children need psychological help. Like there's yes. something wrong with them. And you're telling me that after locking away a man who is attracted to children locking him away for years away from children and then releasing him you really think he's not going to go hunt down a child after being what is the word that i'm looking for just like after not having a child for so long yeah it's almost it's it's like any sort of addict that doesn't get help it's like when you have that first taste it just makes the whole addiction worse Right, and it's just like, you really think that he's not just going to go out and find a child, and it's like, no, you shouldn't let him out to have that opportunity to find another child. Like, that's just, uh, it's just disgusting. It is absolutely disgusting, and I also want to mention, and this is not the only conviction that I found for him. There were other sources that I found that indicated that this had been a problem since he was a juvenile. And with, again, this is another trigger warning. There was another incident with a child as young as three years old. I could throw up right now. I could too. It is very difficult stuff. I hate him. I don't even know him, and I hate him. Oh, absolutely. He's completely fucked up. You've told me his name and, like, two things, and I just, I hate him. Like, Yeah. And this is, again, it's, like we mentioned, this, there has been no rehabilitation process for this, and happen, if this happened while he was a juvenile, this has been a, a problem for a very long time. He's 28 years old now. Right. That's more than 10 years. Right. No, it's... I hate him. Okay. Let's um, continue. <laughs> so investigators went to the house that was associated with the registration in Los Angeles. So, of course, it's um, Tucson calling California, L.A., and then L.A. going to the house. And so it happened to be Frank's parents' house. His father, Frank Sr., was a war veteran, um, and it didn't say much on what his mom did. I did read something briefly about Frank having Frank Jr. having behavior problems and at one point threatening his mother with a knife. Um, that source that I found wasn't completely concrete, so I guess just... I, I wouldn't put it past him. No. Um, so Frank's parents, they were talking to the investigators, and they said that they saw him a couple days ago, but they didn't know where he was currently. So the agents left their business card and told the parents if you hear from him let us know so a few hours after investigators leave their house the atwoods receive a call from frank jr um he said that his car broke down in texas and he needs money wired so that he could fix it so frank's mom takes on the address and tells him not to worry 
Frank's dad, Frank Sr., sees this, copies down the address, and leaves the house. So, Frank Sr. went to a payphone and called the investigators. And he gave investigators... Yeah, I'm like, thank you, Frank Sr. Clearly his mom is just going to enable him and, like, send him money after cops just came to your house saying, we think your son kidnapped a eight-year-old child yeah no thank you like if uh, good job frank senior yeah (laughs) that's all i I know that's really all we can say it's like so california investigators have to call arizona who calls texas so that they're in communication with each other and then that way texas can obtain a warrant to arrest frank jr so the investigators call the garage and they speak with the mechanic just to make sure that Frank was still there. Frank Jr. was still there getting his car fixed. So the mechanic confirms that he's still there and he's with a friend. He's with another male. And so investigators encourage the mechanic to just kind of stall him until they can get there with an arrest team. And so at this point, it's difficult. They they make the decision to car- call the Carlsons. And let them know that they're going to make an arrest because this is probably going to be publicized and they don't want the Carlsons to watch it on the news. Right. So they let them know that they were going to be arresting Frank and they let them know that at this point there are no signs of Vicky. The mechanic did not see a child with them. So um, they just wanted to be transparent with the Carlsons and let them know what was going on. And that's so disheartening because it's like you still have that hope that she's going to be there. And how many days is this since her abduction? Four. So this man's, who's from L.A., went to Tucson, potentially abducted this child, and is now all of a sudden in Texas. Correct. That is so much mileage in between for something to happen. Right. And that's the scary part. And then as the parents... I mean, I, I can't even imagine the anxiety and the stress and just the constant gut-wrenching feeling. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't even have kids, but, I mean, I, I think I mentioned this in, in the first episode. It's like, if I can't even get a hold of my husband for a few hours, and I know he's probably at work, but we have our set schedule of when he's supposed to contact me, when I contact him during the day, just as like little checkups. It's, it's like you just get those butterflies and they're not the good butterflies. So you might as well be like hornets (laughs) in your stomach. Right. And you're just so nervous and you're just like on eggshells. And for that feeling not to be relieved by knowing that that person's okay. Like, I can't imagine what that does to somebody. No. Horrible. I feel... I feel so bad for her parents. Horrible. No one should ever have to go through that. Ever. No, and it's always because somebody was selfish and is only thinking about themselves. And it's, and this is even worse because it's somebody that was locked up. Right. And so it's... Who shouldn't even be out. He just slipped through the cracks. How? So, four days after Vicki Lynn Hoskinson disappeared... Frank J. Atwood and his companion, James McDonald, were arrested for suspect for suspected kidnapping in Kerrville, Texas. This brings us to the interrogation. Gary Dammers of the Tucson Police Department goes to Texas to interrogate Atwood and McDonald. 
Um, Atwood wasn't extremely cooperated in this process. He said that there were only certain things that he would speak to the officers about, and there were certain things that he would not speak to them about, which it's like, you can't do that. Yeah, what a dick. Yeah. Atwood said that he was in Vicky's neighborhood on the 17th, and at the time, he was staying in a park. He said on the day of Vicky's disappearance, he left the park around 3 o'clock to go buy drugs, and he returned to the park at 5 o'clock, but he would not say what he was doing in those two hours, but he said that he was not responsible for Vicky's disappearance. And I, if you're telling cops that you're buying drugs, I don't know, maybe cops don't care about drugs, but don't you feel like it's because you did something worse that by comparison, you don't you don't want to look guilty. Yeah, it's almost just like, oh, I did this one bad thing, but I didn't do that really bad thing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Um, And then James McDonald corroborated the story. He said that around 3 o'clock, him and Atwood had an argument, and Atwood left for two hours. Okay. So this is where it gets... Um... This is where it kind of takes a turn. According to McDonald, when Atwood returned from buying drugs, he had blood on his hands and clothing. And when McDonald asked about this, Atwood said that he had gotten into an argument with a drug dealer. The drug dealer double-crossed him, so he stabbed the drug dealer. Okay, because that's okay? Yeah, I know. So... Okay, get better friends. If your friends are stabbing people, I think you should probably get new friends. If someone came, if you came to me and you were like, yeah, I just stabbed a drug dealer, I would have questions. Literally, if I had any blood on me whatsoever, you would be like, what happened? Yeah. I would be like, yeah. why did you try to save another cat from, like, <laughs> the parking lot or something? Aw, toothless. That was a sad day. That was really sad. <laughs> At this point, the investigation kind of starts to shift, and Atwood is the main suspect. Detectives no longer thought that there was a woman involved, and so that whole theory about a woman kidnapping a child was kind of off the table, and I think that that was really disheartening for Vicky's mother, Debbie. I think she was kind of clinging on to that because that was giving her some glimmer of hope that Vicky was alive somewhere. Right. And that's the problem with, like, witness statements is that they're not always accurate. Same thing with, like, the phone calls that they got with, like, the dickheads doing, like, prank calls. Like, right. I'm sure we'll get into this a million times with, like, these stories that we'll start getting into. But people do that all the time where they'll just call with a false lead or call with, like, a prank call or, you know, oh, I think I saw somebody. Like, if you don't know... Try not to say anything. Like, I understand you're trying to be helpful, but a lot of times you just muddy the water and you make it worse. Which is so hard because it's like, if you see something, say something. But it's also like you have to just, I don't know, be thorough, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's really tricky. So during McDonald's interrogation, he mentioned a couple other people that him and Atwood were spending time with at the park. Just so that they could kind of corroborate what McDonald was saying as well. And so um, investigators went to the park to talk to these these people. Um, these two people, one of them was named Mad, Mad Dog, confirmed. <laughs> I knew you were going to laugh at that. Um, so they confirmed 
McDonald's story in that even so, Atwood had been staying in their trailer for a while. Um, and then Mad Dog also confirmed that he saw Atwood come back to the park around 5 p.m. with bloody hands, bloody clothes, and bloody boots. And I'm sorry, this is the park in Tucson. Yes. This okay. is the park in Tucson. Um, on the day Vicky disappeared, Atwood came back to the park at 5 p.m. covered in blood. So Atwood and McDonald traveled from Tucson to Texas together. Correct. Okay. So investigators obtained a search warrant, not only for Atwood's vehicle, but for Mad Dog's trailer as well. And then in the trailer, they collected a blanket that had blood on it and a hairbrush that they think that had Atwood's hair on it, just with the intention of obviously looking for DNA. Right. Um, the lab tested them. Unfortunately, nothing was revealed. So investigators continued their search. They continued to canvas the park where Atwood and Mad Dog <laughs> and McDonald were saying. I need some badass nickname. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know what name I would have. Like, I don't know. Big Bertha. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Something stupid. <laughs> That's hilarious. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't like nicknames. I don't like, either. I don't even go by like Kate or Katie. Like my name's Caitlin. Yeah. My and name's I mean, people... Kara, but I mean, people call me Kara half the time. So it's like... I was just about to say, people always mess up your name and yeah. call you Kara, even though your name starts with a K. It's so frustrating. Like I, ugh, whatever. <laughs> Maybe I need like an, one of those like, I don't know. I'll talk my name. No, no, your name makes sense. Thank Cara you. It makes sense. Thank you. Sorry to all the Caras out there, but it doesn't make sense. It's Kara, not Cara. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so while they were canvassing the area, they met another couple in the park who confirmed the same story that they saw Atwood in the park at 5 p.m. again with blood on his hands and blood on his clothes. And they, all these people, McDonald, mad dog this couple in the park they all said that atwood said the same story about how he stabbed a drug dealer so he's just going around telling people that he stabbed a drug dealer which his angle is probably like no one's going to be looking for a drug dealer i can just make up i i can just say i don't know his name he was a drug dealer and then they're not going to know who to look for right but it's like where's the body all these people saw him with like this much blood on him and like nobody's gonna say anything like you guys all suck i mean i think that they're all just in the park like doing drugs together i don't know that they necessarily have a moral compass yeah they're probably just like oh, i'm gonna do some drugs about it and then like just forget about forget it forget about it and then the next yeah. day i don't know that sucks because this could have been solved I i'm happy how quickly it seems that everything is wrapping up like at least it wasn't you know years worth of searching for the person but at the same time, like, I, I don't know how, what happened yet. Like, I'm sure you're going to get into that. But, like, maybe she could have been saved if somebody would have reported the blood sooner. I don't know. I'm sure you'll tell me what I will. happened to her. At this point, they had no physical evidence or no body. They needed something to hold Frank Atwood for, right? They lifted mm -hmm. a paint sample from Vicky's bike and they compared it to pink paint found on Atwood's bumper. 
They tested the samples at the materials analysis unit and they were a match. There was also chrome paint from Atwood's bumper on Vicky's bike. And they call this an interchange of materials, which indicated that at some point they had made contact. Nothing from inside Atwood's vehicle came back as a match to Vicky's DNA. And they still had very little evidence and no body, but they were still able to charge him with kidnapping. When word got back to the residents of Tucson that Atwood had slipped through the cracks and that's why this happened, they were outraged. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. And I'm I'm talking marching through the streets. Oh, wow. Outraged. Again, this is a small community and she was just a sparkling little girl. She, everyone that met her loved her. Yeah. So... This monster not only took her, but he hit her on her bike. Yeah. I hate him. Mm -hmm. I hate him more now. And so this... So Tucson finds out that in 1978, doctors warned that Atwood should be in maximum security. He was deemed, and I quote, a mentally disabled sex offender. Good. Glad he got out. (sighs) Horrible. Atwood fought extradition from Texas to Arizona, and at this point, the FBI had to drop federal charges because they could not prove that Vicky was taken out of state lines. Without a body, they they just couldn't prove that. Right. But the state charges of kidnapping still stood. In November, almost a month after Vicky's disappearance, Atwood Atwood would return to Arizona to stand trial for kidnapping. So, bail was denied, and on December 3rd, 1984, Atwood pled not guilty at his arraignment. Because of publicity, the judge moved the trial to Phoenix, which, I know they do this a lot. They move trials a lot, and I guess it's because of the jury selection and everything like that. It's so highly publicized, they don't want it to be trial by media or whatever, but, I mean, he fucked up. So, I know they still don't have a body, so now they're just trying him for the kidnapping. Correct. Meanwhile, on October 12th, 1985, a woman was walking her dog in the desert northwest of Tucson. She found a human skull. The FBI was called back to assist. The body had been scattered in parts and moved around by animals. They spent five days collecting. 100 people scoured the 20-mile area. They photographed the area, marked evidence, and they collected 20 bags and delivered it to the lab. In late May 1985, after a newspaper was released that they found these remains and they are believed to be Vicky's remains, a witness came forward and said that she saw Atwood in the area where the bones were found and when she saw him, she, she saw Frank arriving with a child and leaving alone. Oh, I just rolled my eyes so freaking hard. It's like you wait until bones are found to say this and you've been just sitting on this information. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, you know, 
I saw this guy go out into the desert in the middle of nowhere with this kid, and then he left, and he didn't have that kid. Well, where the hell do you think the kid went? Exactly. Just walked home? Like, make it make sense. Right. Oh, my goodness. Horrible. So horrible. So weathering on the bones was consistent with eight months' exposure to the elements. They were unable to determine the cause of death or if there was any sexual assault. But dental records confirmed that it was Vicki Lynn Hoskinson. Poor baby. I know. Vicki was laid to rest on May 30th, 1985. 500 mourners attended her funeral. Vicki's mother was quoted saying, Vicki Lynn affected a lot of people. These are people that never knew her as a vibrant, tomboy little girl we had and I don't think there is anyone who lived during that time that could ever forget how this community came together because of her. Debbie Carlson vowed that her daughter's death would have significance among the living and Frank Atwood was indicted for first-degree murder. On March 26, 1987, two and a half years later, he was found guilty. Frank Atwood was sentenced to death. Goodbye. Yeah. So, another really upsetting aspect of this case is that three months after the disappearance of Vicki Lynn Hoskinson, Frank told a friend in in Oklahoma that he was considering picking up a child. Like I said before, (laughs) get better friends. Yeah. Like, what are people doing? Like, I've been around some shady people in my life, but, like, if anybody ever said that they wanted to harm a child, a pet, an animal, or just another human being in any way, I wouldn't be that person's friend anymore, and I probably would have filed a police report. Right. Exactly. It just, all it would have taken probably is for you to say something, and they could have looked into it. And, I mean, I know there's cases where they've looked into people and nothing comes of it, but still, like... The your conscience cannot be clear. You have a moral obligation to report these things. One. Right. Number two, if someone is telling you this and you're not going and telling the cops, you're an accessory. And my yeah. I mean, I don't legally I don't know if that's accurate, but you're guilty by association. Right. So Frank's friend cautioned him children have a built in guilt complex. So Frank says, I think I'm gonna go pick up a kid. This friend says, no, kids have a built-in guilt complex, and they're going to tell their parents. Frank Atwood tells his friend, and I quote, this time I'll make sure it won't talk. So this friend is like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't do that because the kid's going to tell their parents that you molested them. Mm -hmm. So then Frank's response is, oh, it's okay, I'm just going to kill the kid this time anyway. Exactly. So you still did nothing. Exactly. And so Frank was also exchanging letters from my understanding with this person. So this is a direct quote from Frank. As far as I'm concerned, I see no reason that sex between myself and a pre-adolescent kid is not only allowed, but is also illegal. I would never cause physical harm. And the only reason psychological damage is done by by the way people involved handle it. They make the kid feel dirty and abused because of their own senseless personal taboos, end quote. That's a child. That is not somebody that gets to make their own decisions. Like, 
Goodbye, sir. Mm-hmm. If you can even call yourself a sir, because you're not. You're a monster. You're not even a human at that point. Like, you're so far gone that I don't think there's any form of re- rehabilitation. And I feel, I know that with a lot of people who have, like, these issues, most likely had some sort of trauma from early childhood themselves. But that doesn't make it okay. No. And that's why we need to get better as a society to help people with these problems and with their situations. And if we can't help them, then unfortunately they need to be put away somewhere where they can't harm people. hmm Like, he could have lived a productive life in a facility away from children and in a situation where, you know, he could have been... Not with like-minded individuals, because that's not what he needed. He needed to be somewhere where he could get help, and it's just sad that, you know, society still is taking so long to to do those things for people. And I know this was, what, in the 90s or the 80s? This was in the 80s. This was in 80s. Well, two years after. Well, she went missing in 85, and then in 87 is... Um, sorry, she went missing in 84. Yeah, I mean, that feels like so long ago, but it's it, it's not. It's not that long ago. Yeah. And we're still not there. No, we're not. <laughs> we are we are still not there in society today, and it's it's really sad. It is very sad. It's horrible. And so before he was sentenced to death, Vicky Lynn's relatives kind of urged Judge Hawkins to sentence her killer to death. Um and there were statements in there from letters written from the family to the judge, one of them being from her sister. And it said, the day that Vicki Lynn died, a part of me died. We were very close people, and Frank Jarvis Atwood chose to tear us apart. This is something that I am not going to forget. It will be with me forever. That's so heartbreaking. It is extremely heartbreaking. While he was serving his sentence, the Carlson family was harassed because he, by his multiple appeals, and it sounds like they were, their court presence was required for a lot of these appeals. Yeah, and I mean... That sucks to re-traumatize, like, because they're victims too. Oh, 100%. Like, like, it, their daughter wasn't the only victim. Like, anybody that was involved in this and that was close to her was a victim. And they're being re-victimized every single time this man is like, hmm, I'm going to file another appeal. Mm-hmm. Because you know that they get notified every single time it happens. Yeah, and they're threatened with the possibility of him becoming a free man. Right. And one thing that his mother, one thing that Debbie, Vicky's mother, said she gets asked a lot, why didn't you just go for life? Why why did you seek the death penalty? Well, in Arizona at that time, life was 24 years. That's not life. No. Frank was... He would have been out at like 52. Yes. Frank was on death row for quite some time. So while he was in jail, the family, again, was just being harassed. Not only by the multiple appeals, but Frank confessed to other people in jail... And he told it, other inmates what he did to Vicky. He wouldn't tell the family. According to everyone else, he was incident. He was innocent, but he had no problem telling other inmates what he did. Also, while he was incarcerated, he got married. 
Ew. He obtained two associate's degrees, a bachelor's degree in English and pre-law, and a master's degree in literature. He was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Christian Church. He wrote six books, five of which were published. Ew. Yes. And I'm not going to say their names because he does not deserve that publicity, but I did look at them on Amazon, and um, his one book only had five reviews. So. They're on Amazon? They are on Amazon. Isn't that awful? I hate this guy so much. Also, ew that he got married. And why is it that, like, all these people that go to jail or go to prison and they're going to be in there forever get a freaking law degree? Like, go away. Well, go I away. guess they have all the free time in the world. I know, but, like, Damn. You're not going to get yourself out of there, sir. Also, I'm sorry, and this is going to sound really fucked up, but if you're in jail, depending on what you're in for, and I think that the whole depending is contradictory, and that's probably why this won't, this isn't a thing. How do you get so much freedom? Like, how do you get freedom to marry someone and to go to school? Like, sorry, you're locked up. Well, pen pals are a thing, unfortunately. Also... The fact that he was just, like, openly telling people in jail, like, I hope they beat the shit out of him. Yeah, I'm sure they did. Because sex offenders don't do well in prison, no. so what I, so I've heard. I've never been, so I don't know firsthand. But personally, if I knew, like, if I were locked in a cage with somebody and they told me that they harmed a child or, or an animal or an elderly person, I'd beat the shit out of them, or at least try. Right. Like, what does this guy look like? How big, like, is he a big dude? Or... No, he, and I'll, um, I'll post a picture. But, yeah, no, he's just average. Like, kind of, oh. like, a dirty hippie. But. Oh, okay. So, and then he had all of these appeals, which were all denied. And then one of the last appeals, well, no, because there were still appeals in 2022. But, yeah, I said 2022. Um, there was one, I'll get there. Okay. Okay. You knew what I was going to ask before I even finished the sentence. (laughs) And so Vicky's sister, Stephanie wrote a letter to Arizona's governor. And this letter has some details in it that up to this point we were not made aware of, but I think that it's important to advocate again for the victim and the victim's care the victim's family and so i am going to read this letter again this is going to be a trigger warning here we go following is the letter that i wrote to arizona's governor ducey on september 9th 2019 as a family and a community we are asking the governor directly to order the drug necessary to resume executions in this state The authority and power lie with him. Nothing will bring Vicky back. The absence of Atwood from this earth can close this chapter. And the continued victimization we receive by him and his wife and paid supporters. It is time the nonsense stops. 35 years is too long to carry out punishment that the people handed down. Every minute, hour, and day... We wait for it to happen. It's just a mockery of the system and a slap in the face of justice and my sister. 
we won't stop. If anyone thinks we will, they have ghastly underestimated the love and promise of our family, friends, and the community. We have to seek justice for Vicki. September 9th, 2019. Honorable Governor Ducey, 1700 West Washington Street, Phoenix, Arizona, 85007. Dear Governor Ducey, I was 11 years old when my sister was taken from me by the choice of one person. The choices he made from the time he was a young person were all enabled by a broken system. People weren't invested in doing the right thing and an evil cycle pursued. The murder of my sister, Vicki Lynn Hoskinson, robbed any sense of a normal life and continues to rob the same thing from my children. The choices the monster inmate number 62887 currently held in Florence State Penitentiary didn't just start with the kidnapped, sexual assault, and murder of my sister. I am confident you are well aware of his record and the crimes he committed that led up to September 17, 1984. As a clinically diagnosed psychopath, he believes he is above us all and will stop at nothing to outthink us, manipulate you and the system that, has con- that he has controlled for almost 35 years. He made the choice to defy his parole in 1984. He made the choice to troll the neighborhood of a town in another state that he didn't belong in. He made the choice to hit a little girl who was riding her bike down a road in the neighborhood she lived in. He made a choice to drive her approximately 20 miles from home. He made a choice to sexually assault her while she cried for her mommy. He made a choice to stab her. He made a choice to leave her in the desert to die. Because he has a history of being irresponsible in his choices, he almost let her live. He dropped his keys and had to return to where he left her to find him. As she crawled through the desert, crying for help and begging for her life, he would have to fulfill a vow he wrote in a letter to a friend saying he would never he would never let the next child tell and he lived up to that promise by murdering my sister the last words she spoke i know haunt him because he doesn't understand them i promise to share the rest of that story the day he is no longer breathing on this earth because he doesn't deserve the satisfaction of knowing why she spoke the words she did as she clung to her death The terror she experienced in the time she was in his control and alive on this earth is unimaginable. Vicki Lynn was a beautiful, witty, blue-eyed girl. She loved french fries and SpaghettiOs and watching her grandfather race cars and playing softball. And she wanted to twirl batons and beating the boys in the playground at tetherball. The day my sister was take, she didn't have a choice. Now, the choice to carry out justice ultimately lies with you. My sister deserves justice. She deserved to live a beautiful life and be 43 years old today. She deserves someone who wants to fight for her today, the way she fought for herself that day against the monster who still breathes now. So I ask you, who do you fight for? Innocent children like my sister, Vicky, or do you fight for the pedophiles who kill them? What's your choice, Governor? Who do you protect? Respectfully, Stephanie D. Hoskinson. That's heavy. Extremely heavy. 
Where did she get those details from? Is that stuff that he told people while he's been in prison? That's what I'm assuming. That sucks that she's having to hear that after the fact. And it's like... (sighs) Extremely detailed. He dropped his keys. Yeah, because he's an idiot. But... So did he hit her on her bike to get her on the ground and then grab her when she was on the ground? Those details are not clear. Because that's what I'm assuming, is that, like, he saw her, and she was a victim of opportunity, because he's in his car and he's a grown-ass man, saw her, hit her while she was on her bike, knocked her off her bike, and then just grabbed her while she was on the ground, and then drove off with her. But that's... That's what makes sense, because it's somebody she doesn't know. Right. And so she would have been immobilized in that brief moment because I'm sure she was in shock or injured possibly from the impact, so. Right, and it's, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, those details were never released and in all of the sources that I looked at, the family never spoke about what happened, which is why I was going back and forth. Do I read this letter? Do I not? However, it was something I found online, so it's, public records and I think also while they were advocating her for her they wanted to bring awareness to this and what he did and so again that's the only reason why I read it I think it's important to the story to know the detriment of what these people do and what humans are capable of yeah I mean it's extremely impactful so I mean whether it I don't know what came of it after the letter, but I mean, if I were the judge reading that or the mayor, or who was it to, the mayor or it the was, governor? Yeah, it was to the mayor and for one of the appeals. So at this point, they were having trouble getting the drug to execute him. Oh. By lethal injection. Got it, okay. And so the first, for whatever reason, the mayor wasn't ordering. I don't know the specific details. I just know that this mm-hmm. was another another speed bump in the road and the family has been going through this for years and years and years decades yeah it's just prolonging it for them right frank j atwood died at the arizona state prison in florence from lethal injection at 10 16 a.m on june 22nd 2022 35 years after he was sentenced for vicky for Vicki Lynn's family, it was an agonizing 37 years, 8 months, and 22 days from the day she disappeared to the day they, they had closure. Literally, my husband was born when he was convicted, and then it was, like, almost around his 36th birthday when this guy was mm-hmm. killed. Yeah. Like, that's insane. My husband lived a full-ass life in those 36 years, like... And she would have been 43. 43. So... She would have had kids of her own. She would have graduated college, married, had kids. Yeah, she probably would have been a badass. I know. Well, good. I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> I guess in the viewing room where you can see the execution happening, there's a press conference after, right? And so there were different reporters that went up there and they kind of talked about the process and what happened and that sort of thing. Um, He was in a wheelchair at the time of his execution because he had something going on with his spine. Uh, That was one of the appeals was, oh, it's going to hurt him 
to have him lie down and be executed because he has a bad back. Who cares? So, anyways. Put him in a chair. I don't care. <laughs> Electric chair. Sit him, sit him down. Just sit him up or, you know. They've got those beds that recline. For real. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's the, the, the things that people will try to appeal are just absurd. However, in the viewing room, there was one reporter to his left set Debbie, Vicky's mom, and to his right sat Rachel, Frank's wife. There was one person sitting in between them. I'm so sorry. I could... His wife was there? His wife was there, and he kept looking at her. To watch her husband get murdered, like, killed. Not murdered, but killed. Well, she married someone who was in prison on death row for murder, kidnap, and sexual... They need to look into these people. Like, all these dumb broads that were super into Richard Ramirez and, like, Ted Bundy and, like, the Manson... Like, how many wives did Manson have when he was locked up? Like, they need to profile them and check on them and make sure they're okay. Because clearly they're not. Yeah. Horrible. So during the press conference after the execution, Debbie got up and she said a few more things. And you could tell that she was just at peace that she could finally have closure on this. And so just a few things that I want to point out that she said to kind of just conclude this case. Vicky was a vibrant little girl with an infectious laugh and a smile that would melt your heart. Vicky, I want you to be free, little one. Rest easy, our precious little girl. May your spirit soar as it continues to live with us, in us, through us forever. One of the last things that she said was to her, was to, um... Vicky's aunt, and I don't know on what side of the family it was, but the aunt that she mailed the card to. Aww. Yeah, so she just says, she just acknowledges that Lori has just felt so much guilt and so much pain about this, and so she just says, Vicky would want you to feel joy, she would want you to enjoy your birthday, and there's, you know, you don't need to hold on to this pain anymore. Oh, because it was her birthday card? It was her birthday card that Vicky was mailing. And the family, to this day, they still have the birthday card, and it's just, like, something that they cherish and treasure. And I will post a picture of the card um, on the Instagram when this episode comes out. And, I mean, I guess it's some sort of, like, almost, like, survivor's guilt where you know that her last action was for you. Yeah. And so that's just really heartbreaking, but I'm glad they still have the card because... Yeah. My biggest thing, and I tell this to everybody, is, like, I would much rather you give me a card than a gift. Mm-hmm. Because I have every single one of my birthday cards since I was one years old. I know you do. <laughs> I have two little boxes filled with them, and they're, I'm almost needing a third one. But, I mean, it's special, and so... I, I feel really bad for her aunt because it's not her fault. And is her aunt still around? Yes, I believe so. Well, on the off chance she's listening, <laughs> um, I just want her to know that it's not her fault. And I know it's hard not to feel guilty when something like that happens, but it's it's the person's fault that took her away from the family 
and it's the system's fault for failing and letting somebody like him be out. That's exactly what it is. And that's something even that her family has had to say. Her mom has had to be like, it is not my fault. Because her mom carried yeah. so much guilt too for a very long time thinking I let her go alone. I knew better. And her mom even said, because, you know, Stephanie came home and then Stephanie went out to go look for her. And so in one of the interviews, her mom was like, for the second time that day, I let one of my children leave the house by themselves. But I mean, like, we grew up in the 90s and like, I was always on my bike. I literally ran away at six years old with my little suitcase to the park and then came back home. We had a park in our neighborhood, but I mean... Oh, I used to run away all the time. It was like three blocks away, so I mean, if something, anything could have happened, like, I was out of eye shot from my house, so I mean, anything could have happened in that few minutes it took me to get to the park, so it's it's not anybody's fault except for the person that did it. Right. Well, and I also blame the system. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I do want to say, though, that, you know, at Vicky's, when Vicky passed, her, um, her mom said that she, Vicky's death will mean something for people living. Um, so Debbie Carlson formed an activist group called We the People. She spent the next decade as an activist. She helped victims, she helped form a victim's advocacy, um, advocacy group. So she testified about the tragedy before the state and federal lawmakers. She got involved with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And she was instrumental in getting Arizona's victims Bill of Rights passed in 1990. I mean, I think that she has done a lot. Um, It just, I don't know. You know, it doesn't, she helped, she also helped launch the Southern Arizona's Amber Alert System in 2000. Oh, wow. So she did a lot of great things, but I, I can imagine that that, it still doesn't make it any easier. No, and I'm sure, like, she did it as a way to help other families, but I'm still, I'm sure it's still just, it probably replaced for her just, like, the day it happened. Yeah. So. It's just really screwed up. Really screwed up. It's really screwed up, and it's really heartbreaking, and it's just. It is so heartbreaking. I just can't get over the fact that I can't, that the letter that her sister wrote was so well written, and. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, just reading it, it's like all the hairs on the back of my neck just stand up. Yeah. And I hope that we never have to write a letter like that and that nobody else has to go through something like that because that's, it's not easy. No. And I can only imagine, so. Yeah. Well, thank you for that story, that very heart-wrenching story, but, you know, these stories need to be told. Yeah. I know that, like, true crime podcasts probably get, like, a lot of, like, hate for bringing light to these situations, and, you know, sometimes we t- we take a little lighthearted approach at things, or we make a joke here and there, but we try, I think we'll try really hard, you know, with this podcast not to do that as much, you know, sometimes it it, it is needed to relieve the tension and the, right. the brutality of these events, but... Ultimately, it's, I think our angle is just mostly to bring these people's names back into 
into existence because a lot of times they just get brushed under the rug and people only remember the person that committed the crime. Right. And it's just these, from my vantage point, Frank Atwood had a lot more rights while he was sitting in prison than, obviously, than the victim did, than the family did, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Prisons now, like, they get TVs, they have internet access, like, freaking some prisoners are on TikTok making videos, so, I mean, it's it's not a good system, and it hasn't been a good system, and I don't think it ever will be, unfortunately, in the U.S. Like, we're doing it ass backwards. Like, it's not good. <laughs> no. It's not good. Well, that's all I have for this episode. Do you have anything else? I don't have anything else, but um, thank you for that again, and I'm very excited to keep going. I have, like, cases, like, jotted down that I'm really interested in and that I want to look into, Um, but for everybody listening, we are still working on the Patreon and getting our website up and the Facebook page, Um, but in the meantime, you can follow us at SentencedPod on Instagram. Or you can reach out to us at sentencepod at gmail.com. You can send us suggestions or, you know, any stories that you really want to hear. Or even some sort of listener tale where you've had an experience with, you know, something true crime related. Or spooky stories, because I love spooky stories. And maybe we can integrate those into Sentenced After Dark. Um, But other than that, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.